to episode 406 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Michael O'Malley and Jessica Carr. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be kicking off this year's Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1927's The Cat and the Canary. Um, which, if that, if that title throws you, just watch the movie and they'll say it 15 times. Um, let's go ahead uh, real quickly head over to we have the full list um, I tweeted it out uh, from the Cinematary Twitter account but if you're looking for the entire listing of the Young Critics series that is currently on Cinematary.com um, we're going to hopefully update it uh, relatively soon with some possible guests and things like that but uh, I think a pretty strong lineup I'm not going to even say any of them you have to go to the website no, I'm just kidding uh, next week we're going to continue the 1920s series with uh, Faust. Um, trying to look, the ones I'm excited for. I'm excited for this stretch. We have uh, Tale of the Fox, which is one of the earliest stop motion animated movies. We have Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is just a all out fun movie. Um, I'm excited to talk about the about Bicycle Thieves because. Um, I hope Andrew will be on it, even though he doesn't seem to like Italian movies or Italian neorealist movies, and talked about how once very early in this podcast about how he doesn't like that movie. He should revisit it. I just remember distinctly he had a whole rant about it. So, that's why that's there. It was a tie, and I picked that one because I was like, oh, Andrew hates this. What a, gr- what a great way to vote. That's how I make... That's a... That's how I vote. Andrew hates uh, I this. I can't believe that that was my nomination. Flamingos, which I am, I am not. I'm not. <laughs> exactly. What is this, what what is this we you. that you're talking about? Well, not me. I would rewatch not, Pink yeah, Flamingos. Zach I think it is like sixty to seventy percent a great time, but then the other forty to thirty percent is not a good time at all. So, but those sixty percent. Yeah, I like I went to a party where that movie was just playing and then everyone around me started like trying to have sex with each other and I was like, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> I was oh, like, oh no. It was weird. Is, I can't imagine having sex to that. It was movie. bad bad vibes, it was bad. bad energy. I was like, I need to leave. Cinematary takes that stand today. We don't know how anybody could have sex to pink flamingos. Don't challenge us. Um all right, well, let's let's move off of whatever the hell we got on. And uh, Jessica, you're gonna kick us off with a movie you watched this week. That's right. So, I just decided that I wanted to explore a director's filmography that I really loved. One of his feature films, so it's Juzo Atami, and he is the director of Tampopo, which is like one of my favorite movies of all time ever it is probably like my number one favorite movie and i had seen someone on letterboxd they watched uh his movie the funeral and it happens to be his first feature and then tampopo was his second feature and i was reading the description and the poster of it looks really cool and uh it is a 1984 film and it is his first feature, but it, like, the poster has all of the family members drawn as, like, little characters. Like, they're, like, hand-drawn, and it's, like, a very grumpy old person. And the film is, 
It takes place whenever the basically the patriarch of a family dies. So he is the grandpa of the family and then he dies and all of the family has to gather because in Japan like whenever a family member dies it's this whole thing and you have to host the body in the house and everyone hangs out for like three days you have to pay a monk to come in and do this like huge ceremony everyone has to be fed the entire time so it's a lot of work and a lot of preparation and a lot of ritual that goes into like a traditional japanese funeral and this film it it just takes you through that entire process so the opening is and it's actually like like there are very funny parts in the movie even though it seems like it would be very grim where the opening is like the the grandpa character and his wife and he gets back from the doctor and he says like the doctor told me I'm super healthy like everything is great I could probably live for like another 20 years and I brought eel home and let's roast it and let's have this like extravagant dinner to celebrate and he just like eats everything that he's ever wanted to eat and then hangs out and stuff and then literally like the he wakes up to watch the sunrise and then he has a heart attack and dies (laughs) and it's like damn that's like that simpsons episode where the dude's like i just retired and i bought my boat to live forever (laughs) then he like gets killed it was like it was like damn but the yeah so the whole the whole movie like you get to know all of the family members and it's like going through all of their experiences uh and it also has like two of the actors that were the leads in Tampopo, they're also in this movie. And um, they all do a really good job. The movie is really kind of like, like I think what Juzo Otami is interested in is taking these like things in Japan and like they're how they are culturally to people and kind of like going going over like what expectation like what societal expectation is and what you're supposed to do and kind of dissecting those behaviors of like why do we do this like why do we pay somebody a bunch of money to just like pray for hours over this body like why do we cremate a body like pay a bunch of money for somebody to cremate a body and then have all these family members gather who don't even really know each other and they're all just like there to pay their respects to this guy who may they may or may not have really known or spent any time with and so he's doing the he's doing that type of uh, ritualistic thing here that he did in Tampopo with food so it was like how food brings people together and all of the kind of like cultural aspects in japan with food and then this one is with like funerals and and uh the rituals that go along with that and i i really really enjoyed it um one of my favorite shots in the movie is he puts the the camera is down like you're the dead body and so it's like everyone all the family members gather over the grandpa and they're all 
kind of like saying their thoughts and being like, are you sure that he didn't breathe? Because it's like, it's like right after he dies and they identify the body and stuff. And they're like, are you sure that he didn't breathe? And they like kind of touch him and they're like, he's so, you know, he's still warm. And it's just like stuff like that. But it's the perspective like kind of feels like you are the dead body and that they're like talking to you. Um, which is really weird, but and also really interesting. And all of the camera angles that he decides to do with that are um, really interesting. And I, I liked it a lot. I thought that it was really good. Obviously not as good as Tampopo because it's not not really subject matter that I want to really think about that much. But I did find myself kind of like thinking about funerals here in America and kind of like how they're different from the way they are in Japan and and that sort of thing but yeah I think the movie is really good it has those dashes of like quirky characters with lots of comedy in it too there's just a very horny lady that shows up and it like turns out that she's having an affair with the dad and he's not telling anyone about it obviously and she keeps trying to get him to go into the woods to have sex with her and it is like very funny (laughs) it's a very and it's like in the middle of the of the funeral and she's like hey come over here I gotta show you something in the woods because she's just like trying to be dirty nasty like there's like literally a dead body just sitting in their living room and she's like hey we gotta go over here i gotta tell you something and he's just like no quit it (laughs) so yeah it's really good um i would like to watch some of his other movies he's made a ton of movies and criterion has a lot of them unfortunately because like, you have to have a Criterion subscription to watch these things. And I don't want to pay for that, but I will figure out a way to try and watch the rest. Where'd you of watch this one? On Criterion. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Super good. Highly recommend. Especially if you like Tampopo. I think it's a really good. I think Tampopo is like number one, top tier. And then the the this first one is like a nice way to kind of see how he approaches things and how he approaches subject matter. There's another movie that he made. I think it's called like The Saleswoman or something like that and it's about like like taxes and tax corruption or sorry, and like fraud and stuff. So I have no idea like how the other subject matters are are handled but I like his style I like what he does and I really like characters in his movies like they're very fun to watch even if they're like super weird um so yeah nice um so check it out on Criterion unless you're Jessica and you're finding another way do you know if Criterion put out like uh, DVDs or Blu-rays of these obviously Tempopo they did but Tampopo, they do. Um, I have no idea if the funeral has a criteria or not. That is a good question. Somebody Google it. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. If, unless you're listening to in your car right now, and please don't Google it at the moment. Just do it, do it later. Don't do it. Um, cool. All right. Well, Jessica, we're going to make this about the boys for the rest of this part. Yeah, boy, boys only. We're going into the danger the zone. <laughs> on a highway well, yeah we, we're gonna be talking about Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick 
<laughs> um, all right. Uh, so Top Gun, it's a uh, it's an '80s staple, uh, directed by. Uh, funny enough, and this will tip my hand on how I feel about the movie, but I love Tony Scott. Tony Scott's one of my favorite directors. One of his weakest movies. Not his fault, but one of his weakest movies. Um, but he does direct the hell out of this movie. He tries. That was, he tries his best. He's doing as much yeah, as he can. So many like it's sunsets not his fault. and yeah. And it's cool because again, we'll get into this. The new one tries to like pay homage to that, and I'm like, if we get a bunch of filmmakers who are inspired by Tony Scott. That, that'll overjoy me. Anyway, um, so Top Gun, directed by Tony Scott. It stars Tom Cruise. Um, the gist of it is uh, his character is Pete uh, Maverick Mitchell. Um, and he and his friend Nick Goose Bradshaw are accepted into this elite training school for fighter pilots called Top Gun. Um, and they're trying to compete for the top award. Um going through this training regiment but then i'm not i'm just gonna spoil it because it came out in 86 and most people know what happens in top gun but uh there's a uh uh incident you know an accident in the air and goose dies so then maverick is very sad um but then he you know redeems himself at the end and has this hole where he shoots down these planes and saves Iceman, played by val kilmer um it's a whole thing um, but really, this movie, it's it, it very much wants to be a movie on, riding on vibes. Um, but as Michael, we were talking about before we hit record, it's it's a super boring movie for something that people really <laughs> love. Like like I'm not disparaging you if you love this movie, but it's just strange how boring and slow this movie is. Yeah, it's it is really boring and strange. And but I think that like it's boring in a way that wouldn't have been boring if like a a few things had just been different. Like it is weirdly like a character piece, which is not something that you would have thought about with like the, like it's about fighter pilots training and like doing like dick measuring contests, like almost literally doing dick measuring contests, uh, the whole movie. Um, but like a lot of it is really about like Tom Cruise just being bros with his dude, I, uh, goose like, and it is about like, that sort of like male friendship and the ways that they like try to buck the system because they um, are unconventional, but they get results and that sort of thing. Um, but I don't know about you, but I just found the characters like insufferable and uninteresting. Um, and that made it very boring for me. Yeah. And it's just, and I was, I was talking about this uh, with my brother who I watched it with, but like the, like the, 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 the plane scenes are very like disconjoint, like are disjointed. Like I don't really, they're, they're discombobulated. Like I really don't know who we're fighting and what's going on. It looks like, you know what it looks like? Um, it looks like when you have, you, when you're on a zoom call and you have it on speaker mode where you only see the person who's speaking. And so it's always like constantly shifting to who's speaking. And half of the time they have oxygen masks on. Um, and so you just hear like a voice and you're supposed to know who the voice is. Yeah, it's it's a strange in like that's it's like the polar opposite of what we get with um Top Gun Maverick, which we'll talk about in a second, but um that one is like completely built on these plane sequences being like incredibly entertaining and engaging and, and just fun to watch. Um I did like the plane sequences better in Ma- in Maverick, but I, I I will stand up for the plane sequences in the original Top Gun because the rest of the movie I'm just sitting there 
like either oh, bored or part. like really strongly <laughs> wanting to punch Tom Cruise in the face. Like Tom Cruise is one of the most punchable people of all time in this movie. And you have to spend so much time with him that it is a relief when the, they get into those planes and it there's just loud noises and lots of editing and you see like planes flipping through the air. Like I thought it, that part was actually pretty cool. And the rest of the movie was not. Man, that cool. I'm wondering how this uh, second one's gonna be since y'all are poo pooing on the first one so much. <laughs> I think so. I, I don't know. The thing about the first one is that there's elements of it that are really cool, but like the overall package is not like like we mentioned. Like Tony Scott, like the direction and cinematography is like very impressive. I thought, um, and the plane sequences are fairly fun. But there's just so much of this movie that's like, I'm Tom Cruise um, being annoying in a bar. Um, or I'm Tom Cruise, just like high fiving my 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 pals in class when I like. They am have cutting such up. good high fives in this movie. Dude. It's a lot of like. <laughs> well, and like <laughs> if you read like scholarship or like look at a bunch of letterbox reviews or whatever on this movie, like there is a lot to be said about like the homoeroticism of this movie that I oh, don't it's think so good. It's no, it's 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 in there because uh, people were complaining that you know like like more not necessarily right wing but just people were uh, there's some people got kind of going oh this isn't a homoerotic or that's that subtext isn't there and then somebody dug up this interview with Tony Scott from 1986 and he was like oh yeah I mean we had a whole scene where they're playing volleyball shirtless <laughs> and we oiled them up like he's like yeah. it's super homoerotic well and there's like I remember like having heard that before I. I had seen this as a kid, like on TV and didn't have strong memories of it. So I was basically watching it for the first time, but I had memories of like people being like, haha, gay top gun or whatever. And I was like, okay, sure. This is just going to be like the, like every other movie where there's like male friendship or whatever, but no, like it is in it. Like they walk into like the top, their first top gun class or something. And someone is describing a jet plane. And this one guy goes something like I'm getting a hard on. And the other guy goes, quit teasing me. Like it's stuff like that where, (laughs) it's just so out there and then uh you have tom cruise's character who is like so very clearly in love with goose and maybe also iceman uh unclear um but iceman definitely loves tom cruise um but there's also this like token female character in the movie and she spends all this time trying to like tom cruise kind of tries to seduce her and she rebuffs him but then she realizes like oh i want to actually have sex with this guy um, and so there's like this long, like five or six minute sequence in which she's like trying to seduce him. And then right before they have sex, he goes, I actually need to go take a shower. And then he just like hops on his motorcycle and rides off before completing anything. And like he spends way more time with Goose with his clothes off than he does with the lady. And like more pa- like more actually like openly gay, like bro meathead action movies. Like I like the idea of that. In practice, though, I don't know. I just found that these characters... I just hated these characters so much. They just seemed like the worst people. It's like a real bad case of, like, 80s masculine star kind uh, of thing. I don't think it's as... It's, I don't think it's the worst. I don't know. I've seen worse representations. Uh, it's... It is very, like, dude... It's very, like, dudes being dudes to the max. Um, well, being obnoxious. Like, I don't know. Like... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I guess I guess maybe I'm more callous than that. I'm I'm used to seeing that Probably. for most of my life. So I was just like, ah, oh, whatever. They're not they're not harming anybody. <laughs> they're, they're not, I'm like they're, I'm like they're they're not harming anybody. They're just being dummies. Like it's fine. Not in the movie. I guess like there's so much baggage though with a depiction like that. Where like I have seen behavior like this in real life too, and I also know the people I've seen exhibiting this behavior are just the worst people. You know, like it's not just like dudes high fiving and playing volleyball or whatever, but it's like 
dudes who are constantly cutting up dudes who are like constantly like trying to like prove their superiority and domination over things. And like, that can be really bonding. Like if you fit into that, but if you don't fit into that, it can be just really aggressive and hostile. And in the movie, it's not that. And so this is not like, this is definitely baggage I'm bringing into the movie, but like, I could not just stop thinking about like, what would this Tom Cruise character have been like in high school? I would have hated Mom, him. like, don't bully me. Don't bully me, Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, I, there was like a reflexive like defensiveness. I was like, if this dude knew me, he wouldn't like me and I wouldn't like him. Yeah, I mean, it, it's again, it's a super boring movie, so I'm, I'm not going to defend it extensively. I'm just kind of like, it's it like is. whatever. Honestly, <laughs> I don't even I wouldn't even recommend watching it to watch Top Gun Maverick. You barely need way. to like you just got to know that Goose it may, died. It, it shows. Yeah, you need to know Goose died and it shows that whole sequence to a degree in the movie. So you can go, oh, OK, whatever. Um, Goose died and that he had a mustache. That's also that is, important. I'm yeah. Googling who is Goose. It's uh, Anthony <laughs> Edwards. Um Anyway, so Top Gun Maverick, it's the latest. It just came out this past weekend. It's directed by Joseph Kosinski, who did uh, Tron Legacy, Only the Brave, um, Oblivion uh, with Tom Cruise. Uh, But this takes place about 30 years or so after um, the events of Top Gun. Uh, Yeah, it's not important. The timeline is hazy because it's it's ostensibly in 2020 or 21 or something. No, and, and, the and, and remember, this was supposed to come out like two or three years ago and, and they've been holding it. So, yeah, so it, it really doesn't make sense. Um, the ages of the characters still is, don't make sense. Uh, <laughs> is working as like a test pilot, um, but of course it's pushing the limits and so he gets in trouble for one final time and when he gets in trouble, they're like, we're sending you back to Top Gun to train um, this group of fighter pilots because they're going to go on this uh, ostensibly suicide mission and they got to have the best person to teach them or whatever. Um, I like in this one though that they very much like lay out the, this is what, like these are the pilots, this is what they need to do, this is how you, like how it's going to be accomplished. Let's train on that for like an hour and a half and then let's do an, a it's basically like, the the climax of the first Star Wars movie, like the the yeah. the trench run. Like it's like <laughs> it basically is. that, except with like real military equipment. <laughs> but like I'm also like one on action on especially like action movies to this degree. I like it when they just lay out like they don't try to like make the the like climax fight like ambiguous they just kind of go this is what we're doing this is the plan this is what needs to happen and then it just and then we and then we watch them train until we have to wait till they execute it because of course they're going to execute it but like you know anyway so this one uh it picks up with goose's son played by miles teller um you have john ham playing the uh the kind of head admiral at top gun um you got a number of people um who are playing the other pilots uh yeah ed harris is there but the other pilots are, are Glenn Powell, um, Jay Ellis, uh, Lewis Pullman, uh, Monica Barbero. Um, and then you have Val Kilmer has a brief scene, which we can talk about a little bit in a, in a minute. And then um, Jennifer Conley plays his love interest. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but she there's a reference in the first movie to him sleeping with like the an admiral's daughter or whatever. And so they just like use her character as the person. Oh, is that what she... I was spending the whole movie trying to think like is this character supposed to be someone that we saw in the first movie? And I couldn't come up with who she was supposed to be. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That makes it, sense. it was, I only picked up on that because I had watched Top Gun the night before. <laughs> so 
I had watched Top Gun two days before and had already forgotten yeah, it, all that. A, so that that is a uh, testament to how forgettable deeply, the characters are. It's a deeply forgettable thing. Um, but you know how you know that that's Goose's son? It's because he has the same the mustache. mustache. He, has, he has the exact same mustache, and he sings <laughs> Great Balls of Fire on the piano. Oh my god. Who wants to have the same facial hair as their father? He's got, like, daddy issues, though, because his dad died when he was very young, so... I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I was overall way, way, way more positive on this than the first one. It's incredible. It's it so much fun. Um, uh, just I again, like with the structure, you know, but they mix the training and like the kind of bantery stuff pretty well. And then the final 30, 40 minutes where they're executing the actual plan is, is fantastic. Incredible. Like it's incredible, so like finale to this movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, it's like, it's summer movie to the max. Um, it's one of those, like, you know, you have people who are like, you got to see it on the biggest screen. I, if I could see this, I, I saw it on a you know on a regular movie screen. But like if I could see this like on IMAX or something, it would be insane. It yeah. would be absolutely incredible. I and mean, the sound design too, like you just have those roaring engines and everything, and it's it, it is real movie magic. Because like like I said, like I, I'm not like like we've established, we're not like completely bought into like Top Gun as a property. And I went I went to this only because I had some friends who wanted to see it. But by the end. Like, and I have my gripes with this movie, but by the end, like, it ends on that, like, 30-minute 30 30 sequence of them just, like, zooming around this canyon, like, pew-pewing and, like, gunning the engines, doing flips and stuff, like, and, and the whole time in the theater, like, you're just, like, shaking from the, the sounds of the roaring engines. It's great. It's really great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I, I decided I love... We need to put what we need to do is take out Chris Pratt from all those big movies that he's in and replace him with Glenn Powell. Glenn Powell is so (laughs) fucking charming. I want to marry him. He's amazing. That's all I. He. Well, what's funny is like his role is very similar to the guys in the first movie where he's like this kind of like dickish like upstart whose whole goal is to be like proving that he's better than everybody else and this is kind of like compared to the other characters that's unique in this movie in the other movie everyone's like that in this movie he's the only one who's like that really and but he's so somehow he's not as a he's he's not obnoxious in this one even though i found the other ones very obnoxious in the first one but he's he is very charming here. Well, that's he's just so, and it's the same. And, and I say this because he also is the same way in Everybody Wants Some, the Richard Linklater movie. He just like he has this natural charm and charisma. He's also good if you've ever seen the rom com on Netflix called Set It Up. He's super charming in that as well. But like he just kind of has oh, like the, he, is he just that. has like this effortless charm. Like like you know they were talking about like. Tom Cruise just is, you know, movie star persona to the max. And I agree with that. But, like, I'm also, like, watching Glenn Powell. And I'm, like, more even more than, like, Miles Teller, this dude has, like, is, like, a fucking movie star. He's beautiful. He's super charming. And he handles, like, the action stuff, you know, incredibly well. I'm just, like, give... Yeah, Miles give, Teller just broods the whole time. That's, like, what he's yeah, given. Yeah, and, and you, like, you were talking about Tom Cruise having a punchable face. Miles Teller has an incredibly punchable face. He's a great actor, but also just has like you just kind of want to punch him the entire time. Yeah, I, I I do think as a result of me not being bought into the characters in the first movie, 
there is a there are long stretches of this new movie that just focus on the drama between um, Miles Teller, Goose's son, and Tom Cruise, and like the daddy issues that went in there, and how Tom Cruise in the intervening decades has like treated him, and like I found that stuff completely unengaging. Like I did not. I, I've seen some people talk about like, wow, the emotional core was so strong in this movie, and I it wasn't there for me. Like it 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 felt very perfunctory. It felt a lot like uh like the later Rocky movies, you know, where they've like Stallone is too old to be convincing as like a um you know as an actual heavyweight champion or whatever but uh they got to give him like some gravitas so he's like training someone younger and like unlike something like um um creed where you've got a really super charismatic fun um younger like protege you've got miles teller who's good but he's given just this mopey role to play that i was not not into yeah he he that's why i say glenn powell is this is the star here um, I don't know. I was just I was literally watch I was watching him and just kind of going like he needs to be in like like he has way more charisma and is way more um engaging on screen than quite honestly any of like the Marvel male leads that they use. I'm like this guy is fantastic. Like, not that I want him to get sucked into that machine, but I'm just like this dude has like movie star abilities. Like we need to be utilizing yeah, that more. It's- it's kind of a shame. I mean, and like a big part of this movie is it being a metaphor for filmmaking. Like that's kind of like not so heavy handed or pretty heavy handedly, like kind of like the subtext here is that like, you know, the craft of flying an airplane is a dying art that is being like uh, replaced by drones uh, in the same way that like whatever the craft of making a good summer movie is being replaced by the Marvel movies or, you know, and like to that point, like, um, Glenn Powell in another era would probably have been more than just kind of like a character actor, which is what he is now. Um, he, you know, but this is not an era in which we have movie stars unless they're going to get roped up into like the MCU or, or a really iconic TV series or something. Um, you can't just like be in like standalone movies and become a movie star. I don't think anymore. Uh, or if you do, you're really lucky. Yeah, and that's and I think you hit on a good point, and that's and let's uh, you mentioned like the kind of how this movie is set up. I was describing it this weekend to a couple people as like it's kind of Tom Cruise's. At least to me, it kind of feels like Tom Cruise's um, True Grit. Um, this kind of this you know this movie star, this very very iconic movie star, kind of reflecting on aging because um, there's a really good piece. Shoot, I forgot what who wrote it. Um, but there's a really good piece talking a little bit about his recent sh- career string. You know, like the mission we mentioned the Mission Impossible movies, but like you have those um, for the most part, and it's kind of like a lot of it is this, you know, upper fifties year old man like trying to defy death constantly because the stuff he's doing in those movies is just insane and like this one it's not that he's not trying to defy death but at the same time there is i feel like this this sense of like oh i'm getting older compared to these people that i i haven't seen that type of reflection from like a tom cruise movie which um are not necessarily always reflective um in a minute so i'll be that makes me excited that you know for, for the next two Mission Impossible movies if it's going to kind of channel that energy. But in terms of like, a, you know, a movie star recognizing the twilight of his career and his age, I thought it was pretty effective in that sense. I guess. I I have no connection to any of these characters. And my, my connection to Tom Cruise uh, is as someone who 
genuinely seems interested in like the craft of the action blockbuster, which is something that I don't think a lot of people seem to be that interested in. And um, as in terms of his like whole career, like I don't think any of this is as interesting as like what he was doing in the nineties, you know? Um, but uh, like in terms of like Tom Cruise as almost like an auteur of someone who is like perfecting, like what is possible with, the summer blockbuster when it has good bones as opposed to being like intellectual property, uh, I think is like, this is a really interesting part of that project because I, before I saw this movie, I wouldn't have thought to lump it in with mission impossible. And I remember seeing the trailer for the new mission impossible movie before this movie and thinking, man, I wish I was seeing the new mission impossible movie, but having seen this now, it like definitely feels of a, of the same project of like understanding the the like core like visceral texture of like a summer blockbuster and like there's tons of cgi in this movie but and i only know this because there's a ton of like digital artists like credited um in the credits um but it has the feel of something like the original top gun or a lot of those like 80s movies and a lot of those like mission impossible movies where it is really grounded in like a, a physical like tactility that a lot of like you know modern effects driven blockbusters don't have um, and not just tactility, but like the way that the action scenes are shot, um, has a real solid grounding to it as well, as opposed to just, we're going to put fantastic imagery in front of you. Um, and you know, who cares how it's edited or framed or whatever. Um, you know, the movies that the action blockbusters that he's chosen to invest, like the twilight of his career, you know, probably the last few years that he's actually going to physically be able to be in movies like this they have all been like real pieces of craft on the action movie level. Um, that is, is really unique and, and out of time, like honestly, like, and it makes sense that he would be drawn to a nostalgia project like Top Gun for that reason, because the, the craft of what this movie is doing does feel like out of place compared to, you know, your other action blockbusters that you might see. Yeah, um, and you know, again, I you know even even though this movie's not perfect and it's not you know this groundbreaking piece of blockbuster movies making, I I do agree. Like it is such a, I appreciate that Tom Cruise is really like really is like overly invested in creating this product and the way you know you can kind of laugh at him because he does go uh, overboard to a degree but like i don't think that anybody making not only just marvel movies but like any kind of blockbuster movie whether it's dc or any of these like you know even like look at the the recent like harry potter spinoff movie like i don't think anybody else is putting that much effort and attention in creating something that is visually stunning and entertaining to the audience when it comes to blockbusters like this and so you know I don't know. I hope I hope we can find more outlets for things like this. But I'm just, you know, I appreciate that he at least does have that attention to it. Yeah. And one last note, like speaking of the audience, like I saw this with a pretty packed theater and this is doing really well at the box office. Um, and I think that is a movie that has, for whatever reason, like invited really responsive crowds like the crowd I was with was a bunch of like middle aged people probably who had seen Top Gun you know, in the eighties or whatever. And they were like hooting and hollering and clapping like the whole time. And some of it, I was like, why are you guys clapping at this? But other times I was like with them, I was like, yeah, man, this rocks. Like it, it was like a real fun movie going experience. Um, and 
given like how uh i guess like sparsely attended so many of the movies i go to are because theatrical distribution is dying um it was really fun to be in that it felt like a summer movie and like to me it felt nostalgic because i remember experiences when i was younger going to packed movie theaters and seeing dumb action movies and having fun with lots of people in the crowd you know i i don't know like it like on that level did kind of trigger some some sense of uh the past for me i guess and i enjoyed that yeah and so like i say i mean it's is it perfect no but i think i you know i appreciate that we have movies like this be still being made and that people like actually again tom cruise is is tom cruise but i appreciate that he's putting you know an attention to the craft that we don't always um we just don't always see from from a lot of a lot of people so i'm like you know we can we can fault him for a lot of things but i do appreciate that he's at least like let's make good blockbuster movies because um someone's gotta do it <laughs> yeah cause, hell you see some of these things that are coming out and i'm like oh so um top gun maverick it's in theaters now again like if you i don't think you ha- as we as we expressed you know with the first one you don't have to be a giant fan of the first top gun to go see this i think if you go in uh completely cold and um i think you'll be fine i think it's, it's just i can't emphasize, stress enough how much fun that final sequence is it's just so charged and it's energized incredible it's like it's like you know hell yeah so um all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we will be back talking about the cat and the canary after this And we're back with part two of episode 406 of Cinematary. And in this part, we're going to be kicking off our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1927's The Cat and the Canary. Uh, directed by Paul Lenny from a script by Robert Hill, Al Cohen, and Edward J. Mont- uh, Montaigne. Uh, the film is based off of a play of the same name by John Willard, and the film stars Laura LaPlante, Creighton Hale, Forrest Stanley, and Tully Marshall. So if you were con- confused or, or thinking this wasn't a 1920s movie, those names should affirm that for you. Um, 
the relatives of Cyrus West gather at his estate on the 20th anniversary of his death to hear the reading of his will. Annabelle West is named the heir to Cyrus's fortune under the condition that she is declared sane by a doctor. Later in the evening, the family is informed that a dangerously insane man, known as the Cat, is on the loose in the area. When Cyrus's lawyer is found dead, Annabelle fears she is the next target. Uh, the Cat and the Canary was the first of three American films directed by German-born Paul Lenny, who was also a painter and art director. Uh, the Cat and the Canary is the product of early 20th century German Expressionism. According to art historian Joan Weinstein, uh, Expressionism includes the art styles of Die Brücke and Der Blue Reiter, uh, Cubism, Futurism, and Abstraction. The key element that connects these styles is the concern for the expression of inner feelings over verisimil- uh, verisimilitude to nature. Uh, film historian Richard Peterson notes that German cinema became famous for stories of psychological horror and for uncanny moods generated through lighting, set design, and camera angles. Uh, so Paul Linney uh, is a product of that. He made the film from 1925 Wax Works about a wax figure display at a fair. And that film impressed Carl Lamel, the German-born president of Universal Pictures. Side note, seen Wax Works. It's not that impressive. Uh, Lamel was struck by Linney's departure from expressionism by the inclusion of humor and playfulness during grotesque scenes. Lamel turned to John Willard's popular play, The Cat and the Canary, which centered on an heiress whose family tries to drive her insane to steal her inheritance. Willard hesitated in permitting Lamel to film his play because, as historian Douglas Broad explains, quote, that would have exposed to virtually everyone the trick ending, destroying the play's potential as an ongoing moneymaker. Uh, as Universal anticipated, director Paul Lenny turned Willard's play into an expressionist film suited to an American audience. Historian Bernard F. Dick observes that, quote, Lenny reduced German expressionism with its weird chiaroscuro, uh, asymmetric sets, and excessive stylization to a format compatible with American film practice. Uh, Jen DeLugos argues that, quote, many stage play movie adaptations in the 1920s fall into the trap of looking like a stage play taped for the big screen with minimal emphasis on the environment and plenty of stage play overacting. This, however, was not the case for Lenny's film. Richard Sheeb uh, notes that, quote, Lenny's style is something that lifts the cat and the canary up and away from being merely a film stage play and gives it an amazing visual dynamism. With the, while the film contains elements of horror, according to film historian Dennis L. White, it is, quote, structured with an end other than horror in mind. Some scenes may achieve horror and some characters dramatically experience horror, horror, but for these films, conventional clues and a logical explanation, at least an explanation plausible in hindsight, are usually crucial and are of necessary their makers first or are of necessity their makers for first concern. Um, in 1927, Variety said, What distinguishes Universal's film version of the play is Paul Linney's intelligent handling of a weird theme, introducing some of its of his novel settings and ideas with what which he became identified. The film runs a bit over long, otherwise it's more than average than an average satisfying feature. Uh, the New York Times in 1927 said this is a film which ought to be exhibited before many other directors to show them how a story should be told. For in all that he does, Mr. Lenny does not seem to strain at a point. He does it in an, as naturally as a man twisting the ends of his mustache in thought. Which is a great line. Um, on that note, let's talk a little bit about the cat in the canary. Um, had anybody seen this before? No. All right. Well, Jessica, what you, would you make of the cat in the canary? Oh, we should also preface that there are, I guess, two versions available. So there's a 
is a 90 minute version um like 80 84 84. 83 minutes yeah available on amazon prime and then i watched the hour and 20 minute version on youtube oh wait wait, wait. the one on amazon prime is an hour and like 10 minutes or something it I think that one is like very clearly missing parts because I watched it first and I was a little bit confused and I had to go and watch the other one. Okay. Yeah. So there's two versions. I watched the YouTube one. Um, Jessica, you watched the Amazon yeah, Prime I was version. Say, whoops! I, wa- <laughs> I watched the shorter. I watched the shorter <laughs> one. Um. But yeah. What did you think? Having yeah, watched I, thought, the shorter one? I thought that it was pretty entertaining. It kind of lost me in the middle part where like the i thought the beginning was pretty solid and also the amazon prime one like there was like a sound the soundtrack like the music that they put with it and part of it it didn't match at all it was like a it was like a like type of like soundtrack and i was like what the and i wasn't even really paying attention to it and cam was like this music is awful he was like this doesn't go with this at all and i was i was like so I was paying so close attention to the visuals that I didn't even really register that the song was like on loop over and over and over again. And it was just like, and it was like during people are dying to that. Yeah, it was like the part, it was the part where she had gotten the no, it was before she got the necklace taken off of her, and then once. Once we, it was just when the family members were just kind of farting around and like hiding and like going under beds and I guess doing wacky stuff, but it still didn't like go with it. And then right when the (laughs) necklace scene came, which I thought was like the strongest visually out of the like all the stuff in the movie but it was like right when that was starting then it started in on the like looming kind of music and i was like oh thank god because it was like just like a weird (laughs) loop of that weird sound that was going but yeah i mean obviously just to like throw just to like bash the amazon prime version one more time uh the visuals like the whatever restor or whatever version they have of the film uh-huh, is in rough yeah. shape uh compared to the youtube one which is fairly there's crisp. a part where it so, kind of lags and it looks like an image that's trying to load and it just like their faces like stretch out <laughs> and i thought it made the movie look cooler so it's like i was like oh okay that's pretty <laughs> weird but you know obviously it's an old movie so it's you know there were parts like there were parts in the middle where i was just like a little bit bored because i was just like okay i can kind of see where this is going but i was so confused about the envelope thing because i i like that that guy the guy with the second envelope died like and then i was like what the heck is in what was the purpose of the second envelope like i know that the second envelope showed who it was like if that girl is proven to be insane that the person in the second envelope like inherited everything instead and i was just like why did why did the cyrus west guy do that why did he why was he like here's a backup envelope in case like the first person goes crazy like this is i don't i wait isn't 
isn't the thing that like the guy had been driven mad by his family and was really irritated with his family and I mean, so yeah but that doesn't he was gonna like <laughs> it still doesn't make any sense like like if, if the older people in his family because it's 20 years later which also doesn't i i also don't understand why it's 20 years after he died because like that that part really threw me no it's very it's 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 very because i was just like if it's 20 years after this old ass guy died then all of the people there are like in their 30s and 40s so they were like in their 20s and then some of them might have been in their teens or like were children or something and so I was like, what did they do to this guy? Like, I hope that there was just a bunch of kids like badgering him. And that's what made him insane. And I was just like, why did why did he do it 20 years later? And then he was like, his old ass was like, I'm going to do 20 years later. And then I want you guys to meet at my old creepy mansion at, in 20 years at midnight. He was like, drive your asses <laughs> over here. And... Come over here. And then the maid lady is like, I've just been creeping around here for 20 years alone. <laughs> and oh my gosh. Mammy Pleasant is a chore. And I like, are we supposed to use the, are we supposed to use the word Mammy? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, when I saw that in That's the credits, I, I was so worried. <laughs> I was like, I saw it in the credits and I said, please no. I was like, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- she was my favorite immediately because when you first meet her once the 20 years passes or whatever she's just like i just spend my time with the ghosts and there's and, I, and you're like ghosts. oh okay that's nice and like the, the well, lawyer and- the lawyer just keeps going like oh okay she's like i spend yeah. it with the ghost and the people still here and like looks around and we're like oh okay <laughs> it's a great like um I, I it's goofy and i wonder if the play like makes more sense um and it was drawing off of like knowledge of a popular play but like it does have like when everyone shows up at the haunted house it's got a great like you just check all the classic boxes for like haunted house thing you know you've got like the old keep you know care caretaker of the grounds you've got like people riding up and be like what are you coming here for and they're like oh it's a family thing it's like but what about the ghosts and (laughs) you know like (laughs) i don't know It, it is very like archetypal in terms of like haunted house movie stuff um i don't know if it felt that way in 1927 but it was like enjoyably camp it was almost like watching clue or something like that where there's like a kind of it feels like there's a knowingness to how it's deploying like this typical tropes yeah i agree um it's you know it's very silly um it's hard to argue that but i think because like like clue is a perfect example like it is so you have these archetypes in place and you just kind of have this um i think the you know i agree with the reviews from the time like the 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 added like german expressionist aesthetic really does elevate it because if i I feel like if it was just like a very standard like carl lamell directing or somebody like that directing um you know one of the the hammer film people um directing this it would be very like straight by the books pretty boring and really not have any of that atmosphere and that does help it is that it has kind of that that atmosphere and that was one i don't totally like i said i don't really waxworks is very visually um engaging because uh paul lenny is a like i said it was an art is was a painter and an art designer um 
but a kind of boring, boring movie. Um, and so I'm glad that this one's a little bit more entertaining and he gets to utilize like some of those expressionist techniques. It's, it has, um, it also like has those great moments where people are like shouting or, you know, it, you, rather than just having the straight text all the time, it, it like implements these, it like kind of finds the mood of the character and like uses that, you know, some like there's one. I love the title. Yeah, cards. there's so one good. where like the characters are kind of like concerned and they like flow, it like flows up in like this kind of wavy fashion. And then there's one where Annabelle is like yelling. It has like this, like this, this kind of shout. And it seems like it's almost even breaking out of the title card. Um, those are like is that the one where there's one where like a, i think a person's meant to have yelled like profanity or whatever and they just have like the comic book like asterisks like star kind of thing like that just like pop on the different parts of the screen yeah and it, and, and it, and it, it always feels like very visually engaging um just for me because i mean uh one thing jessica we were talking about this morning is like um it's tough to i think it's tough for a lot of people to get engaged with like the acting style and in not only this movie but just silent movies in general because i mean if you look at it from their point of view they have to kind of overact because you don't really have any sound so it's not like you can kind of convey the lines you have to overact to a degree to really like visualize how you're feeling and that really that you know having that along with the aesthetic that's very german expressionist um makes it makes it much makes it more much more effective than just being a straight you know melodrama because it has to really like engage your interest through the visuals not only of like what you're seeing in terms of the house but also just how the actors are reacting to what's going on around them Um, yeah i also think that like people were used to seeing like plays and stuff and this is adapted from a play and theater acting is very much like a full body thing where you have to be like extremely expressive because like the you have to reach like the entire audience and i think that they're they're kind of like coming off of that into film and so i think that there are still like parts of it left in there too yeah i think it's it is interesting like how people are conditioned to understand what is like believable and realistic human behavior because I mean, modern acting maybe has more like verisimilitude than, um, you know, silent film acting, but it is not how people actually act in real life. Um, you know, there's still like seri- like tropes and things that people draw upon. I think like at the time you had like a lot of not just like theater, but like vaudeville sort of stuff that like really relied on pantomime and that sort of thing. I think there's like a lot of cultural things at the time that make the acting in silent film not seem so anomalous, like compared to like, if you've only seen like movies uh, like from that past few decades and are looking back. Um, And I think that that's like an interesting thing that like culturally there's like a network of references of how you see human beings depicted. And based on that, like frame of references, you can kind of like find the line of best fit to where how this is how you expect to see human beings depicted. And that's like, quote unquote, like, believable or realistic or engaging um and so um i don't know i i think it's like a it's almost it's almost like a, a lost like art form in a way like the kind of acting that silent film actors do uh because most people aren't even like attempting what they're attempting now and they have like a different idiom almost 
Well, I, I was thinking about this after we were, were talking this morning, Jessica, and I think a good example is a movie that we talked about last week, um, Smiley Face, which we talked a little bit about like how a lot of that movie is sold because... Um, you know, normally, like with a stoner movie, in order to convey to the audience that like the per- the character is high, usually the director will implement some, you know, kind of like a haziness, or will have like uh uh you know um, stuff appear that's not there, things like that to kind of go, oh, they're in a state, you know, they're in a they're they're in a drug state at the moment. And this one, because they don't really do any of that, or even Smiley Face, they don't do any of that. It's just Anna Ferris having to like convey how stoned and how out of it she is, like through her face and how what she's expressing. And like it's almost a silent movie per- performance when I was thinking about it, because I'm like, a lot of that movie is just her having to overreact to stuff because she has to convey to the audience how high she is, but also still like sell the whole thing to you um and i think you know it it yeah i don't think it necessarily like sits with a lot of people because it is so overacting i think to a large degree um the new hollywood system uh there the like new hollywood movement really killed this type of acting because everything had to be naturalistic and then you had like um method acting and things like that and every and everybody feels like performances have to be very naturally like realized um but i think there's something like dreamlike and surreal about the like silent movie performances like this where they have to they they they're not acting like real people but it's also you know most of this movie feels like a dream sequence anyway so like that that lines up with the logic um i don't know if that clears up anything i think that makes sense there's like a real i think in silent film in general not just like just the acting but like a lot of things about silent film feels really phantasmagoric and stuff and i think uh I don't know, like something about the absence of synchronized sound makes it just really, re- really dreamy. And I think also like liberated, um, like liberated the the filmmakers to do stuff that is not as rigorously tied to like temporality as we're used to it. You know, whether that's like the stuff that like uh, George Melius was doing with like, um, like, the the special effects or, or stuff like that, or whether that's just the, the way that like there's like silent films are filmed at a different frame rate. Uh, and that is presented problems or inconsistencies in like how fast the, the silent films are played back, um, than like what we're used to. And so there is, I don't know, like, I think the acting plays into that, uh, even with the movie that's like fairly goofy, like this one where you get this feeling of, you're, you're kind of like floating through it rather than being led like point A to point B in a temporal manner like you would in like a typical movie. And the title cards contribute to that too because the title cards, not just in this movie, but in any silent film, you are like interrupting the action uh, like with a cut that takes place out of time to tell you here's what the character just said, um, which I think is very strange and and kind of out of body Um in effect any any thoughts jessica kind of on, i mean I, I you know i don't feel like i'm gonna sw- like sway your mind but like i i think that at least that's kind of how i rationalize watching silent movie performances mm-hmm. yeah i think all that stuff makes sense and i definitely i definitely agree with it especially adding to like the dreamlike thing but it is kind of jarring when you're not used to watching 
those types of things all the time. Like, I don't, I don't really watch a lot of black and white movies. I almost always only watch it for this series that we do specifically. And every time I watch one, like a silent movie that's black and white also, I'm just like, like when they start in on it, I, I like forget and like, in the, like whenever the professor E type of dude came in and he was like, like wide mouthed and wide eyed and was like doing like this with his hands up all the time. I was like, why is this little silly little man like doing this? And I was just like, like it immediately is like something is uh, not not right about this person that's doing this. And it kind of made me appreciate the performance of the maid lady more because she was like so reserved and like she's supposed to be super creepy but she doesn't do it in like a I'm gonna like hunch over and hold my arms like this and like be creepy I'm gonna do it in like a very reserved like lurking type of thing which I appreciated like that sort of performance but I know that there are are different ways to do it and it definitely like it definitely adds to the flavor of the movie like you know the kind of movie that you're watching and it puts you in that sort of like dreamlike state of mind like you said like I agree with that but it is definitely like immediately like kind of funny to me like it automatically makes me kind of chuckle when I see it yeah no and i think you know this is why I, when i was watching it I, I hadn't this is i hadn't watched like a silent movie in a minute and i was like i need to watch more silent movies because um you do have to like kind of get in that headspace you know i think there's people who will go you know young people should be watching these types of things whether it's you know something like this or like even like a Chaplin movie or things like that and i'm like yes but also I think it's a little bit easier with like a Chaplin or a Buster Keaton movie because there's that action and it's it's more about their facial expressions. Um, uh, the, the facial expressions are kind of the lines. There's less like you know dialogue. Um, but I think I think regardless of what it is, um, silent movies in general, you do have to, it's almost like a muscle that you have to train to a degree because yeah, it is difficult to to kind of sit with those not because we don't have patience or anything like that, but it's just, I think it does require a level of understanding what's, what's going on. And, and we're just so far removed from that type of filmmaking that on a daily basis, whether it's movies or TV or anything like it, a lot, just a lot of stuff doesn't implement the traits that make silent movies effective. Um, and so it's, it's almost like learning a new language to a degree, I would argue. And I think also you have to have a kind of like generosity with the format um, because sometimes the stories that they told uh, were by des- like by necessity, maybe not the best fit for silent films, but that was what they had. Um, whereas like something like a like Chaplin or whatever, like silent comedy is its own sort of form that was like invented for the camera. Right. From but but like something like this, which is like a story like that honestly like is pushing against like the limitations of silent film. Cause we've already kind of like joked about some of the stuff in the plot doesn't exactly make sense. And like just the overall, like kind of murder whodunit sort of thing is something that I think is better suited to like more flexibility with dialogue and, and exposition than this movie does. And like the sequences that really cook in this movie are the ones that don't need that, right? Where you got like the hands reaching out, um, you know, toward the, um, toward the lady with, with her necklace, or you have the scene where the dude's under the bed and, you know, he's like trapped there while the, you know, and he's like, what am I going to do? Um, 
like some of those things are good and like really play into silent film well but then other stuff where it's like at the end of the movie where they're starting to explain like all the pieces are falling into place and we've all seen this sort of scene before like either in a like an agatha christie book or like a more modern like um you know mystery film with sound where where you know the exposition at the end of the film happens to explain all the weird stuff but it it's it's a it's a poor fit for the the silent film compared to some of the other things in this movie. And I think that that's another thing is just recognizing that like these stories, people wanted them to be told in movie format, but by necessity, they had to kind of have the stiltedness to them because you had to include elements that maybe wouldn't be optimized for the format that you had available. Yeah, I was thinking about that while watching. I would love to see... The, so they remade this in the 30s, I think like 1932 or something. They remade it again. Um, I don't know if, the, if that one's any better or worse. Um, but I was like, I want, like, I think that this could play well if you remade this like now. I was thinking just in terms of like... Because it's such an atmosphere movie and it's supposed to be like like the one um, historian said. It's supposed to... It's horror, but it's more like spookiness and creepiness. It's not like straight horror. So it's not like like a James Wan or something. I was, but one person I was thinking of while yesterday was, um, cause the, the mood that, cause this movie is so like steeped in atmosphere that I think he would be perfect is Oz Perkins who did Gretel and Hansel. Like, I feel like if he took this movie, like, and he just soaked it in that atmosphere, like it would be really effective. Yeah. I, yeah, I do think that, that it would be interesting. <laughs> the 1930s movie, I'm looking that up. It has Bob Hope in it. Uh, which is really interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Is he like doing stand up like in the middle of it? I at some have point? no idea. Um, yeah, I was um, gonna say like yeah. all, to that point also. Like the it, it's funny because it's like a who done it movie, but it's more like a he done it because you you don't ever see that guy ever again. Like you see him <laughs> at the beginning, and that that speaks to like. You know, like you were saying, Momali, like their capability, like they couldn't just shoot him with all of the people, too, if he's playing like the spooky guy who's like grabbing everyone. Like we don't see him ever again, literally ever. And it's like, like, obviously, if you're if the audience is thinking about it and they're trying to figure out who the killer is, you have to have the killer like also be there among the like with the other people as well because otherwise it's like okay this person disappeared and like it's pretty obvious that they're one of the people that is just like gone because like whenever his mask came off i was like oh yeah it's literally the other dude <laughs> like, yeah i had forgotten about him to be honest <laughs> I loved his mask though, where he had like the tusks and like the big bulgy yeah. eye. I was just like, oh, they're like really one, going for it. A one eyeball me. type of thing, and yeah, they do. They do a lot of. They try to do like to the atmosphere point. Like they do a lot of like creepy stuff with like certain certain things, and some of it is. It's funny because some of it is like I don't know what is like a bad bad aged transfer and like what on Amazon just looked bad, but or what was like like purposeful but there's like one part where the lady has almost like almost like whited out eyes like it's like her eyes are like has these like kind of shadows on it and it just looks like so creepy i was like huh i don't know if that was like on purpose or if it just looked old and weird but that, that part looked pretty cool 
<clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, if, if you add a little bit more modern style to this and put slap an A24 on it, the people, all the all the young people would watch it. Seems like it. <laughs> seems like it. And it's still, it's still something that is like pretty relevant. Of like, oh, this is like a rich person that died, and people are fighting over his money. Like Knives Out was a super popular movie, and that is like also the same thing. So. Yeah, you have uh, you know, you, you have this like woman being gaslit into thinking that she's insane. Like I, that's why I say like I think you could easily like adapt this for modern audiences, and you get somebody who can kind of just soak it in atmosphere. Um, and I think you could easily like I think I could easily translate because yeah, it's not it's not very period centric um, at all. Uh, so just throwing that out there, universe, if you'd like to make a Cat in the Canary. Uh, remake. There you go. Oz Perkins. Feel like you're perfect for it. Um, any 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 lingering thoughts? Any other any other thoughts on this movie? Um, I I think overall I enjoyed it. It's it's it is kind of it's silly, but it's a fun time. I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned it's a he done it, but also it's a movie that ends with what I'm pretty sure are two cousins oh, hooking up. I couldn't much. figure out if they were related. I was like, I I couldn't well, figure it out. Related? No, some of them are. One of them was like a protege, like protege or whatever. Like he worked, like he worked. I was like, I was trying to figure out if they were I related. Th- I, also, I thought. I thought it was I thought it was two cousins being like let's just yeah, shack up. Yeah, I don't you know? think so. I think it's the, the 1920s. Ugh, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I rolled it off. I was like, it's he the might 20s, have been like, like the protege or whatever, but I don't know. My final thoughts are, dear lord, they use the cat and the canary metaphor so many times. In oh this. man, I think. Oh. My favorite is when they're talking about the guy who's escaped the asylum, and they're like, he thinks he's a cat. And he treats everyone like a canary. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and at that point, you've already heard it like three times, and it just sends you right. into hysterics. Like, you're just like, oh, shit, this is actually super funny. <laughs> it's it's a great, like, movie title, you know? Like, like you need, like, the, uh, the Leo DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood gif of him, like, pointing at the TV. Yeah. I think uh, my final thought is... There's like there's like that bunch of maybe like maybe 10 like silent films that everyone talks about, you know, so like you've got like um, the gold rush and intolerance and like all that sort of stuff. And like those tend to be the only silent films people have seen if they've seen any. And it's really interesting, I think, to go outside of that canon and to see like, well, what were the majority of movies like that people were watching? Uh, And I think this is maybe like a good example of that, which is like. It's adapted from a play. It was pretty popular, but maybe doesn't have like a huge legacy like a Chaplin or a D.W. D.W. Griffith would have. Um, but it's still like really competently made and it's kind of interesting. And I I've enjoyed that. And I think like the last couple of years for um, the the young critics movies for the 1920s, we've kind of done these like wasn't was it Seventh Heaven? Was there one? Was that the one last year or two years ago? And that's another one where it's like not one of those big canonical movies, but it's well preserved and like is a good indication of a certain type of film like that was at that era and i don't know if you're at all interested in silent film and have already hit the hit the classics like don't don't stop there yeah i'm trying to look what we did if seventh heaven was last year or not of course we don't have that one listed 
in the thing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It was one, you know, it's, I, it, it's always nice because there, there is like this kind of canonical list. Like I think, well, for next week's Faust is, is relatively, um, canonical, but yeah. well, that's for now too, yeah, right? We so. also had like cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I've seen multiple, multiple times. It's great, but also it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely like, it's like legally required that you see that in an intro to film. There's class. literally that whole like joke in Portlandia where Fred Armisen's character is like, have you seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? You know, you're a film fan. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's nice to kind of see what, what else was happening, especially because, um, you know, coming out of the German Expressionist movement, um, Murnau and Fritz Lang are kind of the, the main faces, but Paul Lenny was doing a bunch of stuff. He's German-born as well. Um, he was doing a lot of films and then came over to America. He he just doesn't have, like, the pedigree of a Murnau or a, or a Fritz Lang. Um, but like I said, Waxworks is not necessarily my favorite, but it, it is very because like he has that painter background and that art direction background. Um, it's visually you know stunning to look at, and so um, it's cool to kind of see those those craftsmen kind of come over and and bring that into American films. Um, yeah. So, and also if you want to learn more about. Uh, about German Expressionism, especially next week's film, maybe check out my video essay on our YouTube channel. It's, it's good. Yeah, so, a little plug. All right, well, that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we list all the movies we talked about in this episode. Uh, if you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. We have a $1 and $5 tier for patrons. But thank you so much to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, uh, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Next week, like I mentioned, we're going to be diving into like deep dive into German expressionism with 1926 Faust, which is a movie. I'll preface for anybody who's like kind of wanting to watch along. Like this is a movie from 1926 that is visually in- incredible. Just it does it looks it looks like way it, rocks. it looks way above its time. Um, it's it's just a visually striking movie. I'm sure if you go and look at like stills online, there's like these scenes where like the the devil character like has like the spread like robe thing over like the, it's just like it's 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 incredible just like the visuals that they that they're able to capture in this movie. So um, if you're if you're debating between the two movies to watch, this one at least visually is is crazy is you know just crazy to watch. So. Highly recommend. If you want to look at the other uh, young critics watch all movies picks, they're on cinematary.com now. So let us know. Um, And thank you to everybody who voted. But until next week, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you then. (laughs) 